Welcome to the Prodigy Maker Show with Chris Leard. Chris Leard is an internationally recognized high-performance coach, educator, and author of two best-selling books, The Tennis Technique Bible and The Secrets of Spanish Tennis. Tune in weekly as Chris answers questions live from around the world and discusses topics in junior development, technical and tactical training, Spanish tennis methods and philosophies, and more. The show can be watched live at youtube.com forward slash Chris Lewitt. And now, here's Chris. Number one ranked U.S. junior players, as well as numerous top 10 players. Uh, he's the expert on Spanish training methods, techniques, and biomechanics. He's also written two best-selling books, The Secret of Spanish, the Secret of Spanish Tennis and The Tennis Technique Bible. Um, Chris trains his high-performance players at his uh, private facility in Manchester, where I see he is at now, Manchester, Vermont, um, as well as New York and Connecticut. Um, I have to say that I'm so grateful to call you my friend, someone who's been so supportive of my own son, Cam, for so many years. Um, Chris is also an amazing partner with us at the Junior Tennis Tour, hosting our 12U and 14U events at his amazing facility, two events which we have going on November 11th and 12th um, next month. I have to make the admission that before you and I knew each other and we were friends, I can recall reading the uh, Secrets of Spanish Tennis when my son was like three. Reading, I read it so many times going up and down New Jersey Transit and the New York City subway going back and forth to my office. It eventually fell apart and I had to buy a second one. So I grew up on my tennis um, coaching for my son on the Spanish, um, the, the Secrets of Spanish Tennis. So for me, this is it's always awesome for us to catch up and talk Spanish tennis, and I'm so grateful to have you. So I will let the, I saw the overview; it's amazing. I'm looking forward to all of it, and I know the parents will be excited, and players will be excited as well to hear everything you've got. So I'm going to let you do your thing, and I'll try to stay out of the way. Thanks, Ed, and welcome to everyone. Hi, everybody. Uh, that's such a great intro. I'll just try to live up to that. Uh, that story about you on the train is great. <laughs> And that reminds me that the book is going on. That book, Secrets of Spanish Tennis, is almost 10 years old now. And we have the brand new edition coming out next summer. So I'm super excited. The manuscript's into the publisher, and it's 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 getting prepared right now, Secrets of Spanish Tennis 2. So that's going to be even better. Oh, it's great. I, I read it until the binding fell apart on, on the subway every day. <laughs> it was rehearsing all the well, that And that's what I wanted to talk about tonight. I wanted to go through some of the principles in that book. Uh, and that book's been very popular. I have lots of parents who use that book. They use it with their kids and lots of coaches also who reach out to me and say they love the book that helps them with their players. So I guess that's what's important is, is there's stuff in there that that's actionable, that's practical, that parents can use with their kids and that coaches can use if any coaches are interested too. Uh, the, one of the beautiful things about Spanish tennis and the training methodology is the, tr the, the philosophy and the methods are pretty simple. And that's why I think people gravitate towards that. It's, it's, they're easy to comprehend. The drills are, are, I think with the little training, anybody can do the drills and they can take their kids through the paces and, and they can apply the principles from Spanish tennis to their players. So the, I, I, I've always been impressed by the simplicity of the Spanish way of training. So that, that's one of the things I fell in love with years ago when I started traveling to Spain and studying there. So. Speaking of the book, the six principles that I talked about in the book were there's uh, an emphasis on footwork and movement and positioning. So I wanted to talk about that and how you can apply that to your training. There's a, a chapter on acceleration and building the forehand weapon. 
That's a big part of the Spanish method is building a weapon, particularly with the forehand. There's a philosophy in Spain that the forehand is the most important shot in the game. So that, that's hard. You can get into that debate. Most people think it's the serve, but for example, Tony Nadal is, believes the forehand is the most important shot in the game. Uh, in Spain, they work a lot on consistency. And so they build very consistent players and they build players who are good at defense. So even if a player has offensive capabilities, they also have some balance with some defensive capabilities. One of the great things they do in Spain is develop physical beasts, physical players who have just uh, uh, incredible stamina. They can outlast any other player in the tournament and players who are very durable and players who are very strong and powerful. So they have a, 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 an, a kind of an obsession with physical training and off-court conditioning. We can get into that as well. And I'm a big believer in that for my players. And the last chapter that I wrote about, as far as the principles, is this concept of suffering in Spain. And there is a, there's a, a cultural, there's an ethos in Spain that, that you need to suffer to win, to be a great or to be a great player. You need to suffer during your training and you need to be willing to suffer in your matches. And you hear that a lot from great champions like Nadal. You hear that a lot from Alcaraz and so we can get into that mindset, too. That relates to character development, relates to uh, fighting spirit. It relates to discipline and and things like that, the, the endurance aspect and the suffering aspect. So we can start at the top and talk about the movement and the positioning. Um, so I don't know if any, you know, if parents are, are watching, they're, they're, they can feel free to ask any questions they have. Ed, if you have any questions, you're a parent and you, you're a developer of your own kids. So you can also let me know. Uh, if you have any questions, just chime in. But essentially, in Spain, they develop great movers. And so one of the things that I work on with a lot of my young players and um, even older players, if they're struggling with their movement, is is how they position in relationship to the ball. And I think that's something that all players can work on regardless of their technique. They can uh, work on their spacing. They're measuring the incoming ball. And if you develop a good relationship with the ball and you don't fight the ball, that can help you be more consistent. It can help you hit the ball with more spin. It can help you uh, play with more shape. It can help the fluidity of your swing. It can help your mechanics. Just that alone, having good spacing and having good balance. In Spain, they spend a lot of time on the balance of the player, the posture of the player. So, Ed, I think that would be very helpful for parents to work on with their kids or to be mindful of if they're, if they're watching their kids practice or play. I think, you know, what I talk about with my son is sort of, you know, when we talk about spacing and all those different, I talk about these sort of five pieces, like, you know, depth, being in depth, direction, spin, speed, height, as sort of these things that as a player, you almost need in order to move, because I my background is sort of in movement science. So I always think about that, having those sort of five pieces as like that, almost like that, this little robot processor, like your brain has to process those five things in order to be able to move appropriately and create the space. Yeah. Yeah. And and what you're you're describing and, you know, I'm studying kinesiology now as well. And and that's one of my favorite sports science subjects is in Spain, they have this idea of receiving the ball, which is a beautiful concept. It's just that a lot of times in the U S we focus on, on sort of throwing the ball or hitting, you know, hitting the ball with the racket. And in Spain, they spend a lot, a large amount of the training time on receiving the ball. So that's kind of what we're getting at. Is receiving the ball is what you, how you read 
the incoming ball, you read the spin, you read the pace, you read the, the incoming depth, and you have to position your body to receive the ball well. You have to position your body so that you're not fighting the ball, so that you're you're in harmony with the ball. This is like these are very Spanish concepts, Spanish ideas. So when the ball's coming, first you need to read it with your eyes, and then you need to move with your feet and get set up with good balance. And then you have to measure the ball, make sure you have uh, good spacing. So that means the there's several distances that they work on in Spain. And sometimes you can think of it as like three spaces or four spaces that you have to measure or four distances that you have, three or four distances. You have the, the distance from the ground up. So in Spain, they work a lot on receiving the ball between your hips and your shoulders. So I, I, you hit the ball, at, you try to hit the ball at a good contact point in terms of height. You have the distance in terms of in front of your body. So you have to meet the ball out in front. Um, and you don't want to be late. So you want so that, that's part of being out in front. And then you have the distance from like your hip out wide to the right. And that's like the radius of the swing. You want to have a good distance there. So there's this concept of, of measuring these distances and trying to put yourself in the optimal position and they just relentlessly, they'll drill that with hand feeding. They'll drill that with, with racket, uh, with baskets. I just came back from two trips to Spain and the, the drilling was relentless. Sometimes it's too much for, for, uh, for some kids who are not used to that traveling to Spain. Sometimes the baskets can be kind of overwhelming, but you can do that with live ball. If you're doing live ball sessions and your kids are hitting or playing points, you can, you can stand there and look very carefully and watch. Don't just watch the, how they're gripping the racket or how they're swinging. Try to watch their orientation. Try to watch the way. The body is positioned in relationship to the ball. Try to watch if, if the, the player's in, in harmony with the ball or are they fighting the ball. So uh, that's what I would encourage parents and coaches to try to reorient how they watch a player play, how they watch a player hit. And don't just focus on what the racket's doing. Try to focus on, it takes a little practice, but you watch the player, you watch their torso, you watch their body position and then you watch the incoming ball and you try to judge whether they're measuring well or not. You know, I think that to me, that that's something that I think about, you know, always like posture. And I, I'm a, uh, you know, obsessed with joint angles and elbow position. So I also, I say with my son, if, if step one in this sort of ready position, what we're trying to accomplish this unit turn establishes the spacing. So like, how do we, if step one is good, Step three might be pretty good as well. But so it's like a matter of just, you know, like something like the kinetic chain, you know, but yeah. Yeah. If you, you get into technique and biomechanics. So what I'm suggesting is in a, in a very practical way, you don't have to adjust mechanics or technique with sure. this method because you're, you're just working on spacing. And, but you obviously you can dig into the biomechanics. That's a little more in Spain. They're not very technical. Like, just in general, the whole country is not, if you go, you know, you're going to be disappointed if you want biomechanical analysis. And stuff. They're, they're just not very, they're not very into tech. They're a little bit behind in terms of tech. They're a little bit behind in terms of biomechanical study, in terms of video analysis. That's something they could do a lot better in Spain. But so this spacing concept, if you have good spacing, for example, you mentioned joint angles, you're going to get a more obtuse angle in the arm. Like your arm's not going to be as acute. You're not going to be as jammed up with the elbow in terms of extension. So right away, if you're positioning better, you should get better extension through your shots without even having to harp on it too much. You should be able to get better ball rotation if you're meeting the ball early. It's going to help with some of those aspects. You're going to get better extension. Extension in Spain, they have a great, some great phrases for it. They call it accompanying the ball 
or to go with the ball, to throw your racket along the path of the ball, to go out along the line of the ball. That's a big thing in Spain, the extension. But it starts with good spacing. If you don't have good spacing, it's hard to extend well. Absolutely. No, definitely. So, so uh, you know, uh, one of the key things I know, I mean, I myself was a little was talking about this racket head speed and just being able to generate that racket head speed, you know, so yeah. I think that's something that I don't know how much focus is put on with kids in the sort of earlier developmental years. But I felt like for me, that was something that I really spent a lot of time on. Particularly- well, I think you're smart. Like if you look at Cam, he's got a tremendous forehand. So I think you, you sort of you were right to do that. You know, really smart to do that with him. And that's one of the pillars in Spain. That's the second chapter in my book is building the racket speed, building the and primarily the four. And it can be the back end, too. But there's a number of drills that they use. And to work on the spacing, usually you start that with hand feeding. You t- you, so any parent can do it. Any coach can just take some balls and you toss them softly to your player. You move them around. You work on their spacing. Or you can do it live ball. With the racket speed and acceleration, that's like a constant drumbeat in Spain. They're always looking for the player to accelerate. They're looking for elasticity. And they're looking for the, the whip of the racket through the hitting zone. And there's, they have exercises for that. I detail a lot of those in my book. I have a lot of them on like my YouTube channel. There's a lot of resources out there to find uh, those exercises. If parents need more, they're not like, I, I want this to be useful for people. So if parents are, they need videos or some visual help, just, just have them connect them to me and, and I can send them, I can send them videos or we have a whole website for the book with videos, for example, but, um, yeah, there's like there's a whole series of exercises, primary from Luis Bruguera. Luis Bruguera is one of the most famous coaches in Spain, and he developed this series of drills to overload the arm and to build racket speed and build acceleration and to build a heavy ball at the forehand. So that is a, a huge thing in Spain. I see lots of juniors who are maybe 10, 11, 12, or 13, 14, 15, and they haven't really learned to crack the ball. They don't really have a big weapon with their forehand. And I think that's a developmental mistake. You know, that that starts young. It starts in the mindset. You teach a kid to be aggressive. You teach a kid to really uh, to 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 have no fear when they when they hit the forehand or any shot. Uh, but primarily just primarily forehand in this example. And you so it's it's meant it's mental, but it's also physical. You you don't want to be tight. You want your arm to be loose and elastic. You need the spacing to generate the pace. You need spacing to generate the pacing. And uh, and then preferably you hit the ball not totally flat. In Spain, they, they do they do like a, a topspin ball, although you do see some players from Spain who also hit flatter balls like, like a Batista Agud. Or, there are some examples of that. But uh, primarily, like in the Bruguera system in Spain, they like topspin because it, the ball runs and it has more, more of a big bounce and it's tougher to return. Uh, if you have a girl or a female player, you might not emphasize the topspin as much. But sometimes they're not able to generate as much racket head speed and RPM on the on the women's side. I think I, I thought about you know racket head speed was always something that was really important for me when I was developing Cam's game, just because again that forehand weapon, like building that right away. I think I think what made it I think a byproduct that I was able to create that I think was a lot of maybe that Spanish style of like hand feeding the ball. Like I've always felt like. You know, when I watch a lesson or I watch a session from like a lot of coaches, you know, they're they're 70 feet away giving instruction. They're not on top. And I was coaching. I worked Major League Baseball. I worked at LPGA. I worked a lot of professional athletes in different areas. One thing I will say is like I was always on top of my athletes. And I think 
being on top of them, being on the same side of the court, being able to hand feed and give instruction and really see what's going on, you know, and be able to deliver it back was, was part of the coaching philosophy for me, you know, but also for with him, but also giving him that dead ball that requires you to generate that pace with that racket head speed. Like that was yeah. it. Like, I've been the dead ball. I've been, I, mean, I think the dead ball is the way for me was the way at a very early age to create that racket head speed. And once you find that, those contact points through spacing, I think it builds the confidence in these kids that that forehand or whatever stroke becomes that real weapon. When you can take that thing early out in front, it feels like there's a lot of confidence. I feel it gains through that. Yeah, and that that's part of the system in Spain, and that's something you can take and use here in the U.S. with 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 your players or your kids. You know, you can toss it softly, a dead ball toss. The ball has very little pace. It does. You wouldn't think it would work, you know, because it's, yeah. because the game is so fast now. It, it's sort of at odds with with the speed of the game. But what it does is it forces you to use your kinetic chain really well. And, and you have to generate all the pace yourself, which is similar to playing on clay. That's why you need that skill to develop, uh, to hit the ball heavy on clay, because you don't get a lot of pace from, the, from clay courts to the ball. And at the same time, I think there's a, there's benefit to feeding the ball fast because you develop the nervous system, the reactions. I have players here who I'm working, I'm doing a little bit of both with some, some of the young kids I'm working with right now. Uh, and I think that's like the best of both worlds. You can do... Uh, dead, like slow dead feeds to develop the kinetic chain. And then you can do faster feeds and, and to work on quick reaction and nervous system training and uh, quick footwork moves and things like that. So I think it's good to combine both. But that is one of the secrets of Spanish tennis is that that slow feed. They, they often are up close right on top of the player. Like you said, that's a big part of Spanish training, the hand feeding up close. And they, that forces the player to do a lot of repetitions and success and you do it in succession to overload the arm and the body to a certain extent. I think like, you know, for us, it was teaching like at a very, very early age, like what the kinetic chain was, what it, was it, all the parts of things. And, and really like, you know, we still ground force, we talk about ground force all the time, you know, how generating power pace spin, you know, all from the ground, you know, and I think when you hand feed someone, they forces them to do it. So yeah, I, I always love that idea. Yeah. One of the emphasis, one of the emphases, they emphasize a lot in Spain, that when you try to work on racket head speed and you try to develop power, you, you keep a very quiet body, you keep a very quiet head. Obviously, you're going to rotate your your hips and trunk, but but there shouldn't be extraneous movements. You shouldn't be off balance. You can leave the ground, but it has to be a controlled uh, explosion off the ground. So they just spend a lot of time with the posture and the control of the head as the arm is accelerating and as the trunk and hips are rotating. And that's how they're able to generate power, but with control. Like the, the, the goal is still control. It's not just swinging wildly. And that's where a lot of uh, parents, coaches sometimes lose it. They ask a player to swing faster and the player loses control of their body and they start spraying the ball a lot. And that's what you don't want that. You want a player to learn to accelerate and whip, but in a very calm, uh, with a stable, calm body, which is... Um, not easy to learn. That's why, you know, it's not easy to learn that. But when you get that, it's really beautiful. You know, you get that rotation, you get that fast arm, you get that racket speed, but the, the body parts that shouldn't be moving too fast are calm, you know. I think it's, you watched those like this beautiful like the inside out forehands. I was watching uh, I was watching a Swiss indoor. I was watching like Holger Rubin sitting like run, these run around running around these backhands hitting these forehands like that. It's, it's still, but it's, it's violent, but still. Right. There's like that, that, that 
that contrast of yin and yang, violence, but but calmness. That's right. And you, you mentioned the runaround. That's a big part of Spanish training that easy for parents to work on, easy for coaches to work on, players can work on it. Uh, you try to take balls that are sort of neutral in the middle. You try to move to the left and you use your, your they call it the inverted forehand or the drive invertido. It's a great name. And Tony Nadal calls it the drive, inver the inverted drive. Where you go around, you play inside out or inside in, and you try to dominate with your forehand. Interestingly, it's not just tactics, but it's also very good for the eyes and the footwork. When, when you practice going to the left, most players are not very comfortable moving in that direction. It's very good for the spatial orientation, the relationship with the ball, working on the positioning. So it's, it's for the eyes and the feet, but also, of course, later on, it's for the tactics where you want to try to command the, the game with your forehand inside out or inside in. Like you see, like with the footwork, like that sort of like double, like sort of runner, that sort of double sort of crossover to Alcaraz does to set up the inside out forehand. It's like that double, that footwork. Yeah, you have some, you have some different footworks that players use to move to the left. There's a few different options. If it's slower, you can shuffle over. Usually you load a semi-open stance. I usually teach a semi-open stance and going airborne from that position. You can cross behind. You can also sprint running backwards. A lot of players will do that when they want to move their fastest. So you have those three basic options to move to the left. And sometimes you see the pros combine different movements to the left biomechanically uh, in terms of footwork. So you have some different footwork options there and how to get around the ball. But, but the mindset is I'm going to try to dominate the, the point with my forehand. I'm going to try to dictate with my forehand. I'm going to try to take my weapon and, and pressure the other player with my forehand. And it doesn't work as well here in New York if the courts are really fast. If the courts are really fast, you're going to have to play more backhands. But if you're on clay or the court is a bit slower, you will have much more opportunity to move to the left because of the speed of the ball. Oh, definitely. So I I was looking at sort of the next topic in your overview was like consistency. And I actually spent uh, this past weekend at Lafitasi USA playoffs and got to watch cool. top cam play. Yes, it can played, and we uh, so had the top uh, thirty-two kids there. And one one thing I think you recognize, or at least I, I, I recognize in watching, you know, a lot a lot of matches, his matches, everybody's matches over the last couple of days, you know, and traveling the country watching these junior these higher level, you know, Orange Bowl, Eddie Her, you know, Easter Bowl, whatever you name it, all these sort of the higher level kids have the ability to be consistent. They can play four or five good balls to very specific tiny targets and obviously done over time. But to me, that's it. That's, I mean, we, I, I always feel like we spend a lot of time in our serve plus one, return plus one, serve plus two, return plus two tactics to like set up these patterns of play. But once you, once that falls out, or like the, you know, the two one patterns and things like that, that we'll work on with cam and like sort of creating these sort of tactical things. But at the end of the day, once that breaks down and you're at it, you're in that third or fourth shot. Like, can you hit four or five consistent balls to a real, to a like legitimate target in, you know, on a dime? That's I agree with that. I agree with that 100%. I think at the top of the country, you see a much higher level of consistency. All of the young players who want to play nationals and who want to go, go, go far at nationals, win nationals. I always, we're working on consistency from day one. It's, it's, uh, it's a very interesting topic. What you said about the first four shots and rallies, let's say from five to eight and rallies from nine plus, there's still a good portion of points that are 
over five shots. And oh, absolutely. What, I would like to say that I agree with Emilio Sanchez, who's a famous Spanish player and coach, and he says when the when they're important moments, and this is something that Craig O'Shaughnessy hasn't really described, that the important moments tend to go longer in the match because both players are usually a little tighter. And so you see sort of an aggregate during the critical moments of a match, you see more, you see more points that are aggregating towards uh, over four shots in those critical moments. So, so it, you know, I think like you're saying, if you can make the first shot after the serve and be aggressive, it's fantastic. But sometimes you're going to have to run. You're going to have to defend. We talk about defense a little bit later, may have a decent defense and, you know, some players are going to play a bit more defensively than others. Some players are going to be very, very aggressive. You know, but um, so that consistency of practices like that, we have to set up practices where we could, we could spend two hours on just a particular serve plus one, serve plus uh, return plus one pattern in a particular practice, and ingrain that into like your brain, knowing statistically, like, all right, if I land if my service in this location, like, you know section one in the deuce court, I know that 74% of the time statistically that ball is going to come back to this area of the court so I can set up my plus one ball. But then there's that also that part of that practice that, yeah, like they, that shot tolerance where you have to be able to hit these sort of consistent balls, you know, you know, 20 plus balls, 15, 20 plus balls, you know, just to have that endurance because yeah, like you said, the, the key points, everybody plays a little more margin. They're not, so you're going to be in these long rallies. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it, there may not be as many of them, but they're going to come at critical yeah. junctures. Exactly. And so you have to watch out for that. So there's a lot of kids. It's not as it's not as exciting sometimes to work on that stuff. It's not as some kids don't like to grind, you know. And I think it's most top juniors in the country have a pretty good grinding game. They can sit, sit back and make a lot of balls if it's bad weather, if the game's a little off. You know, they can they can get through a match if they're not on their A game. And I think that's a valuable. Um, aspect to work towards. Um, I think that's it to the parents too. Like they, you know, they want to see they, when they look at coaches or look at practice. They sit on, on these practices. They look, and it's it's not the sexy stuff. I mean, look, I teach movement science. It's not the sexy stuff, but it's the stuff that's going to keep you in the game. You know, so like yeah. nobody wants to work on you know posture, balance, mobility, stability, joint integrity. But to me, maybe it's because that's my world. But like every great athlete no matter what sport you play has those has those capabilities and yeah it's not sexy everybody wants to throw money at these other things you know but at the end of the day if you can't move if you don't have all these other pieces i don't know how you do it yeah i i still i still love the the philosophy in spain where i, I like the, i've written about this a lot i've done a lot of videos on this i just talk about how if you don't it's great to be an aggressive player. There's some kids, their personalities are not really wired that way. And it's, it's, that's, it's like an okay thing in Spain. Like it's okay to grind. It's okay to defend. There's a lot of no honor in like grinding out a tough point and defending well. And I, you don't get that too much from coaches and even from parents here in the U.S. The kids are usually programmed to attack. And like if they're not attacking, it's sort of like a crime. But, I, think, I, I appreciate the blue collar way of, of grinding and playing and i think that's what's missing yeah. in it from yeah you know, i mean at the, at, at the same time sometimes in spain they overdo that and players you know i've seen players who spend a lot of time in spain and, and they're a bit too conservative and maybe they don't step up enough and that's that's been a knock on spain on spanish training uh in some academies in spain players aren't you know taking the ball on the rise enough some players aren't moving to the net enough you know so that's definitely something 
you know, it goes both ways. But I just like to see a balanced, a relatively balanced game. Even if the kid's really aggressive, I like to know that they can, they can, like you said, they can be steady when they need to be steady. And I think that's a good quality to have. A lot of the kids, they see the pros, they see Alcaraz and, and all of the amazing shots that he does, but they don't realize that a guy like that, you know, a 10, 11, 12, that guy was grinding a lot of balls, learning how to be steady. And the kids just want what they see on Instagram or on, on tennis TV. And they don't realize that, that there's years of foundational work are happening before you can start, you know, just unleashing the drop shots and the power forehands and, I try to explain, explain that to my students and say, look, we've got to have a good foundation. And then on that foundation, we can build all these wonderful weapons, you know? Yeah. And, and that's, I think it's the patience. I think it's the patience that the parents often don't have It's the patience that the kids don't have. Cause they, everybody, it's, we're in this like instant gratification society where everybody wants the outcome so quickly. Yeah. Kids and it's parents too. Yeah. I think they think when they, you know, make these investments in time and all these different things. They want to see it now, but they, I mean, a lot of these parents, frankly, were never athletes. <laughs> so they don't even understand the concept of what it takes to to build a foundation, an athletic foundation, or to, uh, you know, to well, do. A lot, a lot of the parents I work with are very good athletes and they know. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, sure, sure. I got a lot of, I got a lot of smart athletic parents running the nice show. With me. That. Uh, yeah, it's nice. It helps me. It helps me do my job better. And I consider parents a team. I, for me, parents are, are on my are my best asset. They're on my yeah. we're, all, we're a team together. I work. I have a great. I I try to work hand in hand with all the parents that I, the kids that I work with. And I think that's that's unusual as a philosophy. Um, yeah. I yeah. wanted to say yeah. that being consistent. I I wanted to just before we move on that that being consistent doesn't mean you're a defensive player. And so, a lot of times. That's, that's equated. Like if I'm consistent, I must not be, I'm being defensive, but no, you're waiting for your opportunity ball. You're, you're, you're building and structuring a point in a responsible way. That's, that's different. I would also like to say that being consistent doesn't mean pushing. Doesn't mean moving <laughs> balls. Being consistent. The idea is to be consistent with really good racket speed, getting back to the, the second principle that we talked about, because you want to accelerate through all your balls and not push. And so I would, I, I just want to make that clear. We don't want kids decelerating and just guiding the ball, not moving their feet well, not accelerating well. We want them to hit the ball strong but steady. I like that you see, like, just no, I feel like there's, you know, there's such a focus on, you know, for whatever reason in, in this early years in, in winning, the, the parents want to see the kids win. The kids want to win, rightfully so. I mean, they're young. They want, you know, so just pushing these moon ball tactics, all these things that aren't going to bring you to the level, you know, past a certain point. You can't build a game on that. I don't think long-term, not for, not with the aspirations that these players and parents seem to have, you know? So I agree, like being a defensive player versus a pusher is a, yeah, it's, it's not good for the long term, but what those types of kids have figured out that I respect a lot is they've learned to keep the ball in play and so, they've learned to disturb yes. the other player without power generally. Definitely. So you usually see two types of junior players. You see the ones that run and just gun everything. <laughs> they just go for broke on everything and they don't rally. Or you see like the, the, the on the opposite extreme, you see kids who are who push and just you know, dig out a lot of balls and get the get the get a, get the balls in the net a lot. Um, 
I really respect because the kid, the kids that that push like that, they're they're lost. Like you said, they're not gonna, they're gonna they're gonna have big problems later on. But they've learned they've stumbled on some important wisdom of tactics that getting the ball in and not making a lot of mistakes wins a lot. It helps you win a lot of matches because those kids have a lot of trophies too. And they've also learned that a ways to disturb their opponent that's not necessarily related to pace because most kids think the only way that they can win a point is with pace, which is not always true. So there's some things that they've learned that's very mature. But on the other hand, they probably have technical deficiencies. They probably have a lot of issues that's, that's preventing them from accelerating well and hitting the ball with and building a weapon, you know. So, you know, I, I think it cuts both ways. But uh, that's why you can sometimes see a player who has very poor technique, but who's fast, gets a lot of balls in play, and they're smart, and they win a lot. They can they can beat players with very pretty strokes because they have they've learned a lot of they've they've uh, learned a lot of things tactically that other players with pretty strokes haven't. Sometimes it's not just how your strokes look. You know, so you want to have the pretty strokes and the smarts <laughs> and the weapons and, and the way, ways, you know, the creativity. You want to have all of that together. Definitely. So, so let's talk about the defensive piece then, because we're talking about sort of the, the what might appear to the untrained eye, the pusher as like the defensive person. But what does real defense look like? What is that? Ideally, ideally, you want to defend with racket speed. So that's something that, uh, something that parents can look for, coaches can look for. When a player moves into the corners or when a player moves into the recesses of the court or they're pushed back under pressure, you don't want them to tighten up and decelerate, which is really common because you're under pressure, you're on the run, you're getting pushed back, and you naturally tense up. You know, So one of the concepts they have in Spain is aggressive defense. I like that term. It, it uh, sounds oxymoronic or paradoxical, but it's the idea of when you're in trouble, you try to loosen up and you and you accelerate. Generally, you try to play with spin. Good defense usually has good top spin. Most of the kids that I see who have rudimentary defenses, they usually defend by pushing the ball, by decelerating. Um, There's a lot of blocking, a lot of pushing. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of blocking. The the, the way they see it in Spain is when you're in trouble, you try to play heavy. And the only way to play heavy is with racket speed. So you have to fight against the tendency to be very, very safe with your shot. You have to accelerate and generate. If you can generate good heaviness on your defense, it's going to help you get out of trouble and get back to neutral in the point, maybe flip the table, you know, turn the tables and get back on the offense. And... Defense, defense is a willingness to move back into the, into the recesses of the court. A lot of players, I work with many, many players who literally only patrol a small portion of the baseline and will never move off that, that place. And I just believe even if you're a very aggressive player, there's a time where you may get pushed back. You may, you may have to retreat a little. You may have to go into the corner and you have to be comfortable in those uncomfortable places. That's what defense is. And so some kids have literally never journeyed into like the, the, the different, the depths of the court or the sides of the court. They literally just don't even know what's going on over there. And so you can play like that, but you're just going to be limited. If you're playing a good player who stretches you out or a good player who, who, who's able to push you back, you're going to be very uncomfortable. So I just believe that that's important. It may be a smaller percentage of your training. You may be much more aggressive, you know, but that's fine. But. I just think you should have you should have the ability to defend if you get into trouble 
usually on your service games, you can you can run the show. If you have a good serve and a good serve plus one, you can run the show. You can you can hold easily. But what about on the return games? Play, play a good server. You're going to have to run and defend a little. You know, you're going to have to try to scrap out some points. You know, I just think that's fundamental. Yeah, that's great. So I guess that sort of leads into the piece of talking about sort of the physical conditioning to be able to do it, because that you know that I mean, that's part we talked about. So the shot tolerance, being aggressive, uh, uh, you know. And needing some physical conditioning to do that, but then in terms of the defense, I mean that. You know, what is what does the physical physical conditioning look like in Spain? What is a, like a workout routine look like? What do they focus on? I think that's interesting to me. Yeah, I found it fascinating too because I'm I'm, I'm also a student of exercise science, and I, I I'm really into strength and conditioning and kinesiology. So they have really good exercise scientists in Spain, they do a great job off the court with movement training and they uh, and agility and, and overall strength and conditioning. Uh, they usually, one of the hallmarks is twice a day fitness. So they do two full sessions of fitness a day, which is a lot coming from the US. Uh, sometimes that can be an hour and a half or two one and a half hour sessions or a two hour, you know, hour and 45 minutes and then another hour after in the afternoon, along with two sessions of tennis. Uh, so that can be a very different type of training day versus most. The typical academy maybe does an hour of fitness, you know, they plug it in somewhere. Like in Spain, the fitness is front and center. Like it's 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 on par with the tennis training. Sometimes it, it's, it's the priority over the tennis training. So for some people, it's too much, and they, they don't like that feel. They don't like the... The, that that prioritization and for some kids and tennis players they love it like they 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 start they they get into that system or that method and they they can't get enough they they love the flow of the day two fitness sessions a day and um in spain they really truly believe that you need to be the fittest person in the tournament like that that's part of the warrior ethos that's part of the warrior mentality um if the match goes longer, they, they you have to be the last one standing. You have to be the one that's less fatigued. So it's just a big part. It, it sort of binds everything together that we that we talked about uh, because you can't move well if you're not fit. You can't defend well if you're not fit. You can't run well if you're not fit. You can't hit the ball with big weapon if you're not strong. And you can't be consistent if you're not fit, because if you start sucking wind or your heart rate is too high, you're going to lose your decision-making capability. You're going to lose your control of your emotions. You're going to, you know, everything's going to fall apart. You can't really have any of the stuff we, we've been talking about without the fitness part. And so that's where I see a lot of, I try to advise a lot of parents and uh, families that say, look, we can do all this really good stuff. We can build beautiful technique. We can work on this. We can build weapons. We can do this. But if, if you don't want to do fitness, I mean, I don't think you're going to win that much. You're not going to, you know, you, you're going to look real good, but because that's where, you know, when it gets tight in the match, it's to a third set, when the conditions are really tough, you go to nationals and it's humid and hot. Like you, you got to have that conditioning aspect. A lot of kids here in New York are low on their conditioning. One of the reasons is they're so pressed for time. Everyone's on a time crunch. The kids are rushing to get to tennis practice. A lot of the kids, I have a lot of kids from New York City. They have a ton of homework. They have logistical problems getting from A to B after school. And, and like, 
what usually gets chopped off is the fitness. Like the fitness gets chopped off first because you got to play tennis. You can't, you can't skip tennis because you're a tennis player. So usually the fitness gets cut and those kids can do very well in the East, especially in the winter indoors. And then they go to nationals and they have big problems. They, they can play with anybody, but they can't endure. They can't, they can't last. And so typically you'll see like a talented kid from the East, like win around three sets, but the next day crash, you know, like they can't, they can't win the next round because they're just too sore, or, you know, or you'll see a kid go to the round of 16 and then they just run out of gas, you know, like they, like they can play with anyone, but, but they're just not going to be able to outlast kids from Florida, SoCal, or a lot of the academy kids and things like that. So that's like a big thing. It's really huge, especially for it's very, very apropos to the situation here in New York, New Jersey, you know, tri-state area, that kind of thing. You always think about like, you know, when I, when I was coming up with like, you know, how do you build this sort of, you know, prototype athlete person, I always thought of like building the athlete first, you know, I, I would spend time in my early years and before my son was born talking through this with coaches or people who played on tour for a very short period of time and became like hitting partner, all these different things that they had done. And I kept saying like, you know, if you could do it all over again, what, what would you have what would you do differently? And some of the, and some of the conversations I had, and it seemed like there's always that piece in those conversations that sort of like resonated was the idea that people had said, look, my parents gave me the best technical instruction money to buy. I had all the technique. I had all these things. I had all the tax. But at the end of the day, when they stepped foot into like a challenger, a future, whatever it was there, these were animals. These were people from on a different level. Athletically, mm-hmm. it, there was nothing that was going to save them if they didn't have that, uh, that physical ability to like endure, like you said, endure to suffer, to play this incredible defense, to have the strength to grind out these matches, to be physically sort of dominant. And yeah, so that was, to me, it was always, if you build the athlete first, you know, and you combine it with all these brilliant things that you're doing with everyone, then it's, you have this sort of marriage of both worlds and that's how you build the sort of like prototype. Yeah. And that, and that physical capacity can be intramatch or it can be intermatch. So it can be in the one match itself, being able to get through one match, but it's also being able to come back and play the yeah. second match of the day <laughs> and play doubles. And then actually to do it again and again and again to win a big national, or like win a super or something, it, it, tremendous stamina you have to have and the tremendous resilience. Your body has to recover well. So there's, you know, uh, one other thing they do is they spend a lot of time in injury prevention. I talk about that yeah. in the book. I, I, I work on that relentlessly with my uh, my students, my families. I, I lost my career to injuries. It's something very near and dear to my heart. So I, I'm very I'm similarly obsessed with staying healthy because uh, to me, one of the most uh, under undervalued talents is durability. You, know, you don't hear people when people assess talent, they never talk about durability. They never talk about resiliency. And to me, that's one of the most important things is you have someone who, who's able to stay healthy, an athlete who's able to stay healthy, to recover well, to recover quickly. And if they do get, uh, not to get injured at all, but if they do get injured, they, they come back uh, relatively fast. And that to me is a very important part of becoming a professional player. You see many, many talented players who don't make it because of injuries. And you see some of the greatest in the world, like, I believe Roger Federer played how many years without a major injury? You know, decades. It's, it's incredible considering the amount of volume these guys are playing like, day in and day out. They can stay healthy. And that's that's key to becoming a top pro. It's key to becoming a, a, a great play, a great junior player. 
And, you know, I always say if you're injured, you're not going to win that big trophy, you know, so. I just talked to my side joker. I said, don't get old, don't get hurt. Those are two things as an athlete that can't happen. <laughs> you know? It's, it's hard though. It's hard though. My, my son, like I trained my son in cross country and track and he had a uh, just terrible injury. He, he had had a femur stress fracture the last six months out, six months recovery, terribly unlucky. He's going through a big growth spurt and, yeah. um, you know, as a runner, that's a devastating injury. And, and, and we try, you know, those are the things you, you try so hard to avoid as a parent in any sport, as you develop as a coach. And those are the things you want to try to prevent. You want to do everything in your power to prevent major injuries that can, that can cause a, a loss of momentum in a kid's development. You know, really, like you look, at, you look at tennis, you look at so many sports where these repetitive overuse injuries. Like, I mean, you can scroll through an Instagram account and you see these 10, 11 year old kids with casts on their arms, injured, out, surgeries at 10, 11 years old, you know, it's, and you think, you know, this is heavy volume of work. There's a sort of like, at some point, I think there's just, you know, there's diminishing returns on this volume. You know, there's like the striking that right balance on people like you with, you know, with an educated eye. I think, you know, you got a lot of coaches out there just like, look, if you're willing to pay for it, come on, let's keep going. You know, but you have someone like self who's actually training these kids at this highest level. It's not the, the, the hometown coach who doesn't have, that maybe the experience of the eye or the that, that you might have but, but to me to me this topic is one of the the biggest challenges of junior development in any sport particularly for tennis players is how do you manage the, the adult volume the intensity of the training how do you prevent uh overuse injuries but but because you, you also need to train big like the, the, to be a, a champion you have to play a lot and you have to train like an animal so like balancing that uh, parents and coaches like being very uh, close to their player, feeling their player, uh, maybe even using, you know, there's a lot of technology now that you can use to measure uh, how, 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 where a player is in terms of recovery. And, you know, there, there are a lot of uh, biomarkers that you can track now as well. If you like, to, if you're into the tech and the science, science aspect, it's just really being in touch with your player and knowing when to push, when to when to when to to play it a little safer. It's it's a very very it's very tough to do well, and sometimes even if you do everything right, you still get unlucky. With it. So it's just those are the that, that sometimes can happen, unfortunately. And I think what you, I feel like what you notice when you look at you know you look at players on tour, you look at like these high level collegiate players. The parents aren't far from the player. You know, in some cases, you know, I think they 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 keep an eye. They have an eye on these players. You know, we see at the pro tour, see all these parents involved. They're involved. They they've never left. You know, I think so. You know, there's there's a balance. There's also that balance for the parent of like, how much do I be involved? How much do I give the reins to someone else? How much? But at the end of the day, they know their kids physically. You know, as well. So you know when to pause. It's got. I think it, like it takes a team. It takes a village to raise this great player. You know, and everybody has a role in it. Kind of the parent has some role and says, okay, at some point, like. I know my kid well enough that he, he needs he needs you know a, a pause for for a day or whatever it is. But like I think yeah that's it. More isn't more. And I think that's what it feels like you see with a lot of parents and, and the coach and you know the sort of like the charlatan coaches are never going to say you know it's too much. You know if, if the parents are opening the checkbook, it's always going to be time to train. You know and sadly you know so I think it takes you know someone like yourself or someone, you know, people with credibility to say, no, it's, we're going to, we're going to put the brakes on for a second and make sure we're, we're playing the long game here. We're not playing this, you know, short game to win a couple, uh, you know, um, you know, 
L3 championships take another picture for Facebook, you know? So I don't know. It's, it's, it's about yeah, it, it's, it's a really, it's a really tough, there's, it raises a lot of tough developmental questions because yeah. some, some parents are so conservative. They think they do their kids a disservice. Sure. I agree. I, I've yeah. talked to many parents to tell them they might, Sometimes they're doctors or they have, they had, they know a doctor who told them this and they, they, they're afraid to train. Like they're, they're afraid to train hard, but too, too safe. You know, they say, we're just going to wait. We're just going to wait till my kid's a little older. And, and the, world the more you wait, by. the more you wait, the gap between, you know, your player and the kids who are, are, are killing it is, becomes too great and you can't catch up. And on the other end, there are many, like you said, there's many examples of parents maybe. Or coaches push too much, you know, um, and and unfortunately had many stories of injury. So it, it's it's really tough. It's a really tough balancing act. And it is I, the idea? Yeah, I agree that like people, you know, I I see that too. And like even like my junior coaching and anyone like kids who play sports that aren't that aren't tennis that I coach. Like it's the parents. There is this sort of like you know like they're made of glass, you know. And then unfortunately, the world will pass you by if you wait. The world, I mean, the world's passing you by every day that you are not consistently doing this. Yeah, because, because at the end, it, it also depends on your goals. Like, if you sure. want to be truly great, like if you want to win a Grand Slam, you know, I, I've never coached a Grand Slam winner yet. I'm, I'm working on it. You know, if you want to be, you're going to have to take risks. You're sure. going to have to take some big risks definitely. with your kid. Yeah, definitely. You know? And and you just have to live with the consequences, you know. That's it. If you're just trying to develop a D1 player, get a scholarship at a nice school or at an Ivy or something, I mean, can be a little safer. You be a little more conservative in the, the training. It's not that it's not that hard. If you have a decently yeah. gifted kid, if you if you train them right, it's not that hard to make D1 somewhere. If you you know do a good job to train, keep them healthy, you know. But uh, when you're going for the big the big dollars and the yeah, big, yeah. big world. Like you, you're you're walking at tight rope. Like, yeah. like you're going to take enormous, it's already a crazy idea. It's just to even think that your kid could like win, be one of the greatest in the world. You're going to have to take tremendous risks to, to, to do that. Something like that. You know, it's, and a lot of, you know, a lot of kids won't make it, you know, it's just, that's, that's the way it is. So I see it both ways. I, I, I hate injuries. They, they, you know, I, I'm very, I really care for my students. I don't want them to get hurt, but at the same time, I want to give them. I don't want to give them a training. Uh, I don't want to give them set up their training in a way that they couldn't achieve with their goal. Like if I don't want to sell them short and, and give them training that's too conservative, they have no chance to be great. You know, absolutely. So how does that lead into like this suffering piece that we always hear about with the Spanish with Spanish tennis? Like what is suffering? That? Some people think it's controversial. It, like it's just it is what it is. In Spain, they have a culture of suffering. Uh, fascinating discussion recently. A PhD professor contacted me. He's a professor of Spanish at Texas Christian University. He's telling me about how the idea of suffering goes back to the conquistadors of Spain. <laughs> like it goes back many. Uh, centuries in, in Spain, including um, relating to the, cat, the Catholic religion, and they had different reformations there. That, and he saw a lot of parallels between the way Rafa and Alcaraz, uh, like their belief system, their their morals, and and the way they fight, and, and the the idea of suffering. He saw a lot of parallels from a historical context that I found I thought was fascinating. There's a lot of parallels. Uh, also to the suffering that the Spanish people underwent 
um, with Ferdinand Franco in, in you know, with, with the, the, the regime, they had a, there was a totalitarian regime in Spain for many decades and that there was a brutal dictatorship from Franco. So the Spanish people went through literally a lot of suffering. And as soon as they gained their freedom, this, uh, there was this, uh, uh, incredible rise of Spanish tennis that grew out of this newfound uh, freedom, democratic freedom in the country. So it's, it's a fascinating history, but it's just part of the ethos in Spain. It's part of the culture. It's part of the sporting culture. And everywhere you go in Spain, you hear those words. You hear coaching. You, you don't normally hear that in the U.S. <laughs> you know, like a coach yeah. is just telling a kid, hey, man, you know, you got to <laughs> suffer. You got to suffer today. Remember, uh, we work today. We're going to suffer. You know, it's just it's, it's so I, I noticed that, and as I was going around the country originally, I was like, "This is this is not like an accident. Like this is like a theme that you see everywhere." And coaches just mention it a lot. So they train kids to believe to believe that you know that that tennis is a fight, and that you have to be tough, and you have to you never you can never quit, you can never give up, you have to have this. Uh, this tremendous spirit uh, of, of this fighting spirit. And, and that relates to being willing to suffer. You don't always have to win pretty, you know, sometimes the, the tough, basically the mindset is the tougher this gets, I like it more. Like the, the, t- the worse this match gets, the more this guy is going to make me run, the more, it, it, you know, what's interesting. Humility relates to suffering. Because in Spain, they, there's a, a parallel value of humility. It's a big part of, the culture, the, the sporting culture, you, you need to be a humble fighter and to suffer well, you need to be humble because a lot of kids don't want to run. They don't want to, they, they believe they're always better or they're too good to run. Their ego is too big. And so they just hit the ball really hard. Like if you, a lot of times you'll see it in the tournament, you'll see like the rival will hit a tough shot. The kid will sort of run for it and then fire, try to fire a win. He's not really running. He's not really trying to like actually get it like extend the route. It's just, it's going to be over. Sometimes that's fitness too. If, if you don't have fitness, you usually go for broke as well because your heart rate's high and you know, you can't continue, but, but the mind that that's not a mind you have to, they, they try to cultivate humility along with this uh, spirit of suffering, this willingness to suffer those two values together. Like, okay, I I'm in trouble here. I'm not going to be I'm not going to cry about it. I'm not going to make excuses about it. I'm going to chase this ball. I'm going to get it back in and I'm going to fight. I'm going to get, I'm going to try to do everything I can to get back in this corner. And, and that I, I, I love that. You know, maybe you hear some, some people say, well, I don't think you have to suffer to play tennis well. And I don't know if that's true or not. I'm sure there are players who are very good who don't like to suffer, but I just love that, that mentality. I agree. I don't know if that's like a controversial thing, but like, uh, is it, is it a socioeconomic thing? <laughs> well, I, I don't, I think it can be, especially it depends on your environment when you're growing up culturally. Like if, like I noticed a kid, a lot of kids who play at country clubs, I always kind of joke about that. Like, sure. like the, it's just too soft an environment yeah, yeah, yeah. like that, that environment will usually the coddling environment where everything's like, lux, there's luxury. You can't have too much luxury if you want yeah, to learn exactly. Suffer so like a lot of times I I don't recommend kids play in the country club they're better off in a performance environment like you know um, and and but I will tell you that I've had many kids from wealthy families who work like animals yeah. they suffer very very well 
And so I don't, I think it's more the parenting. Some of it may be genetic, but you can, you can come from a rich family and you can teach your kid to work and, and suffer and fight. I, I think that's not necessarily social economic, but you're right that you do see a lot when you're, when you're poor, you have no money and, and the tennis is putting your bread on the table. It, it motivates you in a way that, that, that's hard to, you know, match if you're from a wealthy family if you have everything taken care of but some kids have that no matter what it doesn't matter where they're from they just hate to lose so much that they can find that inner drive so i think it it's it's not so clear cut yeah no definitely yeah so i have a couple questions so as we're sort of winding down on this one of the questions was you know um what are we'll go i'll screen like that what are what's a top drill that a parent or coach could do with a player related uh, related to both related to both acceleration defense and consistency so are there is there a key is there a drill that you really like that a kid can do to work on um like let's say racket hit speed or acceleration or something like that yeah so usually we talked about hand feeding I, I recommend that and any parent can do that any any coach who's just starting out can do that you don't have to be an expert and you just learn you learn how to grab some balls and it's that it seems Seems easy, but it's actually a real art to hand feeding. You learn how to toss the balls in different ways. You can toss the ball downwards. You can toss the ball upwards. You can you can manipulate the ball in different ways. But I think learning to toss the balls from the hand, you see a lot of tour coaches do that when they're fine-tuning things, even, even at the high level. It's a great way to – you can toss the balls around slowly and work on positioning and footwork. You can toss the balls quickly and work on reaction and speed and things like that. So I would say just learning some basic hand feeding. And what you can do with the hand feeding, it takes a little more study, but you can learn some of the acceleration drills from the Bruguera system, which are very famous in Spain, where you toss the ball in a, in a little bit more rapid succession to overload the body and to develop, develop more racket speed. So you can get racket speed done that way. You can work on your consistency that way and your movement and spacing. And um, the other drill that's a little harder, if you, if you have proficiency with the racket, so if you, if you have a tennis background, the other drill that's really, really famous in Spain that you see all the time, it's now proliferated all across the, the world. And Spanish tennis is, is everywhere now. The, the, the concepts and the training, so you see the drills everywhere now. Uh, it wasn't always like that, you know, maybe 20 years ago when I first started going to Spain. And you see the wall where the coach volleys. That takes a lot of skill, though, so I don't often recommend it to unless you have a tennis background. But the parent or the coach can volley the ball in different ways and different patterns to work on the player's racket speed, to overload the player, to work on consistency, things like that. So those would be the two, hand feeding and the wall. La Pared is... Uh, um, a very, very famous drill going back to Pablo Alvarez and Luis Bruguera back in the 70s and 80s in Spain. Awesome. And, and then in terms of a drill, I mean, there's so many defensive positions you're put in in all these different these sort of like uncomfortable positions on the court. Is there a defensive drill or some? I mean, I think about people just defending out of the backhand corner being something that seems very you know yeah yeah so i mean yeah. just the, the most simple and famous drill for for movement backward and defensively is the the x drill it's sometimes known as the equis and it's just an in and out and sometimes in spain they call it the in and out or they have different names for it and you just push a player but you can do it with the racket you can do it with, with your hands if you're just tossing the balls 
and you can push a player back and, and they have to learn to retreat and give ground and, and then accelerate aggressive defense. And you, you can do it on both sides. And it's sort of like a half, uh, like a V shape or a half, sometimes it's called a half X. And then you bring, you can bring them in, which is the full X. It's just an X shaped movement. And to work on the, the ones laterally, there's a lot of simple drills you can do. You can toss the ball aggressively into a corner and ask a player to go out wide and then recover. And you can feed the ball with a racket or you can set up a ball machine to do that. Ball machine's great. I recommend ball machine to lots of parents who don't know how to play. Uh, there's like some little portable ball machines where that can simulate the hand feeding. And then there's obviously more robust ball machines that can feed the ball much harder and spin. You can do a lot of those drills with ball machine, or if you're somewhat competent with the racket, you can feed balls into the corners and work on defense. I was just in Spain and Luis Bruguera, he's getting very old, but he's still, he's still a genius. And he was taking the racket and he was hammering the ball into the corner and making the kids run like into the side fence, making them really suffer. And like, you know, you can do some stuff like that to cultivate like the defensive mentality. It's hard. Some kids don't want to run. Some kids don't, they, they just don't want it. They don't want to suffer. They don't want to endure any pain and they don't want to, they don't want to run that much. They just want to hit the ball from yeah. the center hard typically. Yeah. So, nice. That can be tough. It's more like a mental block that you have to get over first. Like one of the funny things when I, I, I bring a lot of players to Spain for training and some of the first things that they used to do at Bruguera Academy, for example, is like they would just take the, the kid like American kids and just, like throw 10, 15 balls and yell at them to run. Like just get over it. Like just, just, it's not going to be pretty. You're going to be tired and it's going to hurt. Just like run for this one, run for that one, run for that one. And after the third or fourth ball, the kid's like, you want me to keep going? Like you want, (laughs) are you serious? Like, yeah. Like we just want, like get over it. Like sometimes you just need to run and grind and get, get to something, you know? I'm getting old now. When I was a kid, that's all I did was run around. (laughs) <laughs> no, but it's not it, like i said there's no you have to be humble you, yeah. you just want to like hit winners and not move yeah. i mean people a lot of, a lot of kids play tennis like that it's not really it's not those are not kids i really want to train i want to train kids who are really animals you know that are, they're really gonna fight to the end and will do anything they can to get the ball back and, yeah. and uh i think there's uh there, there are some kids who just want to like hit some nice shots. Don't get too messy. Don't get too dirty. Don't, don't, don't work too, don't, not too much pain. And, and, you know, that's tennis for them. And I, I don't really see tennis that way. To me, tennis is like combat sport. You know, I'm really into MMA. I'm into martial arts. And for me, tennis is combat, you know? Yeah. I think, and I think, you know, you get a lot of coaches who, you know, in their, in the back of their mind, they're, you know, for the parents, Rick, check next month. It's about making it look pretty for making these kids look as good as possible on the court too. You know, having some kid grinding out of the corners, trying to suffer and making it difficult for them and not, maybe not seeing them at their best, you know, I think, yeah, it's not really that pretty, but that's not the majority of the point. Most kids should have weapons. Like you get back to the forehand, you know, like, so hopefully parents can see that you're, we're trying to build big shots and, and, you yeah, know, aggressive, true. aggressive tennis, but it's just when, when the going gets tough and th- you know, yeah. like if it's it windy, if everyone, you know, if, if it's hot, if, if, yeah. if, if you're feeling sick, 
you know, like you, you just want to be able to just want to be able to grind out some some, some yeah. matches, you know. Exactly. And, when uh, you know, when the shit hits the fan, you know, you yeah. gotta, you gotta fight. It, it, it can't it, always be pretty. No, I mean, I'm so in, in most of these matches, the kids play a hundred matches in a year. How many of them are are pretty and everything works out as planned? You know. Yeah, but a lot of kids expect they think every match is gonna be like. If it's not like that, they're like, oh well, maybe next tournament. Like, no, yeah. like, come on, yeah, like, yeah, don't pack your bag. Just, just you know, get well, the job done. Agility. I think you know, it's funny. We had last month. We had. Uh, Dr. Uh, Emily Wright on, we talked about, and she's a sports psychologist, um, she works at IMG, and she's fantastic, and she does some work with Cam, and, uh, you know, we're talking about, you know, just this confidence, and you see the fragility in these kids, you know, and that one point can turn, or one ball can turn around the trajectory of these matches, because the, the mental piece isn't there, and you, you always see it as a parent, I see it as a parent, because I'm on the sideline, and you see, you know, particularly, I, I was on the bridge, I do Penn this weekend, watching these matches, and you see the kids who, you know, something goes wrong one point and immediately they look up to the bridge looking for their parents, like, and then it all falls apart, yeah. you know, and it's like this, you know, this, you just see it, you know, so, you know, I think that's a part. Yeah, of I mean, for sure. I mean, Rick Macy calls them marshmallow kids. You get yeah. kids like that. There's a lot of, there's a lot of research now and journal articles on grit. And, you know, and, and I love, I love that word, you know, it's like a passion and perseverance towards the sure. goal, you know, like, like being willing to persevere. Sure. Uh, I was just in Spain, a coach said, that, you know, I was talking about how I wrote a book on Spanish tennis. He was like, well, I, and he said, well, I think Spanish tennis is about perseverance. You know, and that was his perspective. And, and that's true. That's suffering. That's fighting spirit. Uh, the perseverance, like not never, never quitting when things get tough, you know, it sounds like a cliche, but you have to inculcate that. Like you have to develop that in your young kid yeah. uh, or else they can get problem solving skills. Like how do you endure? Like how do you problem solve? I think that's, you know, like you said, the kids, it gets hard and kids just say, okay, next tournament, next match, next off, uh, you know, it, it, I don't know that to me is, I don't know if that, that's a parenting thing, a coaching thing. I don't know what it is, but um, it's, it's all, it's, yeah. it's all of those, it's all of those influences the parents obviously have a big influence on how they how they raise their kid how they develop the character the examples that parents set for the children i have four kids that the example that you set your kids are watching they see if, if you don't have perseverance if you don't have grit if if you make excuses your yeah. kids learn that you know if you if you give up easily your kids learn that from you if you or the opposite and you learn that from other role models usually the tennis coach is a huge role model so coaches are big role models for kids and they coaches help kids learn values and character. And I think the fitness is really important. So like you, you learn a lot of these values in tough fitness. Like, so a physical trainer can do a lot for a player's mentality. Uh, maybe it's more so I would argue maybe more so than a psychologist, you know, uh, a good trainer, a good, a good physical uh, strength and conditioning coach can do so much for a player and develop their confidence, develop their 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 psychological uh, capacities, you know, their character. Good good strength and conditioning coaches do that very well. And then the kids will have confidence to do all these things that we want them to do on the tennis court: to fight, to suffer, to grind, to run. When they have when they feel strong off the off the court and their fitness, that that gives them that. You know, I think that's a big factor. And also, like as a parent, I think about the idea that you know. It's also finding, it feels like it's also finding people who are on the same mission as you, who fit, who 
follow the same sort of like have these core tenants and these beliefs and the way that they operate. You know, I think that's why I think you know people say like your parents have a big influence and they do, but I, I often think you know our kids or tennis players, whatever they, they spend even more time with their peers than they spend with us in the course of a day sometimes. So it's also those people, we can influence our kids so much with the, with all these beliefs and these sort of strategies and tactics and try to help them as much as we can to see the guide them towards this pathway they, they want for themselves or these goals they want for themselves. But it's also their, their peers that they surround themselves with influencing them through the course of the day, you know, you know, particularly yeah. sport, like tennis, it requires so much. And so not that all sports don't, but, you know, but this requires so much repetition and, you know, time, time and commitment. It's easy for your buddies at school to say, hey, you know, would it be easier to go home and sit in the couch at three o'clock and play video games? Wouldn't it be easier to like go on vacation this weekend and like forget about tennis? You know, wouldn't it be easier to do all these different things? And I think so that to me is also part of it, too. Like you're having the right, you know, peer group around you also that that supports what you're trying to accomplish if you want to be at the highest level if you want to play at, a, at a, like you said at a different level maybe high school tennis is what you want to play or something like that it might not require as much you know uh, it might not require as much as that but or you know but um to, to i do think it- that's a that's a good point the peer group matters that's why if you ha- want your kid to do high performance don't put them in the country club you know mm-hmm. don't put them in that environment the environment matters and so parents can help by trying to keep their kids around, you know, always in a demanding environment, always with other kids who have big, big aspirations and always around kids who are hardworking. And when kids see that around them, they, they will flourish. I took one of my young players to Spain a couple of times this summer and we, we trained at a very, um, very uh, t- tough academy where they, there was just an expectation that everyone there was going to work really hard. And she flourished. She loved it. And she was surrounded by all these serious players. And it was an amazing experience for her. And that's kind of what you're talking about. Everyone around her was pushing, pushing, pushing hard and pretty disciplined. And that had a positive effect on her character. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that, that feels like, like that's it. You know, that, that peer group is, is really important to make sure people, you know, can stay on the same path. That's why I would say when I, you know, when, when Cam and my son's coming to, you know, your Saturday, like your, your, assuming Sunday, those, those group high performance groups with like the high performance juniors, high school, college players, like it's great to get in there for hours and just battle, just fight every point when you're you know, making those matchups and having kids just grind it out and fight and battle for like, you know, against each other. Like it gets intense and it's fun. And it's, you, you feel like you're in that environment. It's like everybody's, you know, no one's trying to give an inch kind of, you know, yeah, that, that, that can be a weak link in a lot of kids' development. Uh, a lot of kids are not, maybe if, you're, if your player's not making the progress that you expect, it could be from, a, a lot of times there's a weak link in the groups. You know, they're, they're training in groups, but the group, the kids around your player are, are not working hard enough, or maybe the level is not good. So the, 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 the type, you, you may be in a group, but it might not be a good quality group. And parents really have to watch out for that. Sure. It's easy to want to say, you know, you know, it's kind of like you want to be like the dumbest person in the room. You almost want to be the worst player on the court and have to like fight it out with all these top players. You know, um, I think sometimes yeah. parents, parents own egos get in the way of that too. And they, they like the fact their kid's the best kid in the group, but you know, you're sort of like the big fish in a small pond, you know? I think the smart parents always want to be the, the lower kid in the group. I agree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I like, I like to think so, but yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. But, um, all right. Um, 
we've taken up way too much of your time this evening and you just ran off court to get nice uh nice conversation i enjoyed it yeah likewise it's always great you know it's kind of like you want to be like the dumbest person in the room you almost want to be the worst player on the court and have to like fight it out with all these top players you know um i think sometimes parents parents own egos get in the way of that too and they they like the fact their kid's the best kid in the group but you know you're like the big fish in a small pond you know I think the smart parents always want to be the, the lower kid in the group. I agree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I like I like to think so. But yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. But, um, all right. Um we've taken up way too much of your time this evening. And you just ran off court to get nice, to nice uh nice conversation. I enjoyed it. Yeah, likewise. It's always great. We hope you enjoyed the program. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and recommend the show to your friends. We greatly appreciate your likes and shares. Thank you for your support of the show and for helping us grow our audience. If you would like to train with Chris, please visit chrislewitt.com for more info. You can also join Chris's online school, clta.teachable.com, and follow his blog at prodigymaker.com. A reminder that all show archives can be found at youtube.com forward slash chrislewitt.